Well, it's great to see all of you here this morning, and I wish I could see all of you online. In fact, I think it's only fair for those of you who joined us online that maybe you ought to have a camera in your house so that we could see you, right? Right? No, that's bad. That's freaky. <laughs> um, so we are second week in our Advent series that we are calling the Gifts of Christmas, and Pastor Weezy kicked off that series last week talking about the gift of hope. And um, this morning, we are going to be taking a look at the gift of peace. Now, um, it's interesting, as I was preparing for this message, um, I have been here long enough, and I have preached here long enough, that I'm now able to go into my sermon file, and I have the sermons from the very first time I've preached here all the way to this point. And I just typed in my sermon file, Peace. And when I did, 17 sermons came up that I have preached on peace. 17. I told this to someone. I won't give that person's name. But I told this to someone, and that person said, well, you've got your sermon ready for tomorrow, don't you? You could just take whatever you had preached on already and just recycle it. Yes, that's true. But I'm not going to do that today. This will make number 18. Amazing that I, that looking at, that obviously works out, I've been here 16 years now, it works out to about a sermon a year that has been at least dedicated to peace. Maybe a little bit more because the math is a bit fuzzy, right? 17 doesn't quite equal 16. Um, so, but nonetheless, um, it's just amazing to look back and see, wow, I have preached that much on peace. It's been that much that I preached on peace. So today marks the number 18th sermon that I've not shared yet with all of you, that I will preach on about peace. And let me just share what is so unique about the scriptures. I know we know this, but I just want to share it nonetheless. This book, this Bible, and not this particular book, but the Bible in general, is truly living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. That this book is the living word of God, not because of the words and the pages, but because of the author of it, Jesus Christ himself, who is living and the word of God. And I say that to say this, that we can look at, and you might be thinking to yourself, Dan, you've preached 17 times on peace. What more could you have to say about peace? Honestly, well, you'd be surprised because here's the thing about scripture, because it is living and active and it is dynamic, you can take something like peace and you can turn that prism, if you will, and see peace in all these different aspects and ways of seeing peace. And today, we are going to turn that prism once again, and maybe, hopefully, if I'm somewhat successful, and it's not based on me gratefully, it's based on the power and the Holy Spirit of God moving amongst us, so I hope you're open to it. If not, it's your fault. No, I'm just, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but nonetheless, it is, it is looking at, once again, another aspect of peace that I think is so important. Let me say this. We, we, you, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you might be familiar with the Hebrew term for peace, and that is simply the word shalom. It is a very common word in the Hebrew language. In fact, it is, it is, shalom is to the Hebrew language what aloha is to the Hawaiian language. Right? It is a greeting as well as a farewell. You say it at the beginning and at the end. Shalom, shalom. And it, it, is, it is indicative in doing so, of the meaning of that word, which is peace. But it's not just peace as in the absence of conflict. 
It is, it is peace in the sense of wholeness and completeness. And so when you start greeting with shalom and you end and say goodbye with shalom, it is once again indicative of that wholeness or that completeness of may peace not just be the absence of conflict in your life, but may it just bring you wholeness and completeness. May you experience that wholeness and completeness that, by the way, every single one of us has been created to experience. All right? Every single one of us has been created to experience that peace. Peace or shalom is mentioned 237 times in the scriptures. And in fact, um, in some ways, and I, I don't have um, really as one, let me just share this. Let me share a quote of what I think is really important about understanding. I think this, this pastor, I think is right on about what this pastor perceives as the importance of shalom. This pastor writes the following. One of the most important values in the Bible the Midrash, ancient commentary in, on the Old Testament says, all that is written in the Torah was written for the sake of peace. Let me say that again. All that was written in the Torah was written for the sake of peace. In other words, one could say and reasonably say, I believe, and, and actually ought to say, is that the whole, net, whole of kind of the redemption and restoration and all of those things its ultimate, most likely ultimate aim there is wholeness, completeness, or in other words, peace. He goes on and says this, Shalom is what love looks like in the flesh. The embodiment of love in the context of a broken creation. Shalom is a hint at what was, what should be, and what will one day be again. Where sin disintegrates and isolates, shalom brings together and restores where fear and shame throw up walls and put on masks, shalom breaks down barriers and frees us from the pretense of our false selves. In other words, peace is being who we really are in Jesus Christ and being okay with it. Do you understand that? I, I, I'm wondering if, if we really have embraced it because peace is not easy. To get to that place, oh, that's a lifelong journey. To get to that place where we are comfortable with who we are in Jesus Christ, that we can actually accept who we are in Jesus Christ. I, let me just say this. I, I myself might throw myself into this category. In fact, I, I will is that I, there are things in me I may never be totally comfortable about who I am in Jesus Christ because I don't believe it. Jesus, there's no way you could truly transform. There's no way you could forgive me. There's no way you could make me whole. I am just, I am guilty. And we let ourselves live under the, the weight of that guilt. And the way to come out from under that guilt is for us to begin to kind of embrace that shalom, that peace that Jesus wants to bring to us. And the way we go about it is, is that Jesus doesn't ignore those sins in our lives. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, don't, let's just put that aside. It, you know, we'll just pretend that never happened. That's not the way Jesus worked. If that was the way Jesus worked, there would never be a need for him to die on the cross. Ever. It's just not the way that that works. In other words, to get to that peaceful place, that shalom, guess what we got to do? We got to go through a lot of angst, a lot of conflict, a lot of hard work, a lot of fear and anxiety as a part of going through. But here's the thing. Jesus says this, I am walking with you through all of that. 
You will not walk alone through those things. You will not walk alone through those things. Peace that Jesus, I think, brings here and that Shalom alludes to here and gives us an idea of what it is, is not a false peace. It is not a false peace. I think sometimes in the world today, and I'm guilty of it as well as a parent and, and, and maybe even as a pastor, is that sometimes I want peace and I will force it. Forced peace is never truly peace. You cannot make two siblings kiss and make up. They will do it for the sake of you told them to do it. But they will be right back at each other minutes later. Right? And if you don't, if you have siblings, you know, you know this. You know this. You just came from Thanksgiving. I was talking with someone today and I asked the person, hey, how was your Thanksgiving? And the person said, I didn't fall into any pitfalls with my siblings. Victory. We know what that is. We know what that means. Everybody's together and you've got that one sibling growing up that, that was always taunting you, teasing you, giving you a hard time. And you would tell your mom or dad, you know, so-and-so is pointing their finger at me. They won't stop. So stop pointing your finger. And then they point their finger at you under the table. And you know they're doing it. They just never stop taunting you, right? And so I say that to say is that forced peace isn't real peace. That's not the kind of peace that Jesus brings. Jesus does not come and all of us say, all right, that everybody out of the pool, we're going to have peace. Enough of this. It's just not the way Jesus works. He could do that. Right? He could do that. I guess someone wants him to do that. I'm with you. I'm with you. Would you just come down and just, everybody out of the pool, that's enough. I've had enough of this monkey business, right? Can you just be a parent, you know? <laughs> Please, Jesus. Um, that's just not the way Jesus chooses to work. He can work that way. It's just not the way he chooses to work. And so what I want to talk about here today is the title of the message is Gift of Peace. <sighs> I've changed, I'm adding a word to it. I'm adding a word to it, and I'm going to say, I'm adding two words. I'm sorry, I don't know how to count today. I'm going to add these two words in front of the gift of peace, and that is giving the gift of peace. And the reason why I want to add that is that the title of the message for today is this idea that we can not only receive peace, but we can give it as well. And I think that today, in case we don't already know, is that there is a need for us to have peace. There is a need for us to not only receive peace, but to also give peace. There is a world out there, but let's just ignore the world out there for just a minute, for, okay? Let's just put that off to the side. I think sometimes we refer to the world out there, so we don't have to refer to the world in here. Let's just spend a few minutes referring to the world in here. And, and not just in this church, but in churches all around the world. But specifically, the churches in this country and evangelical churches, which is the pool, I, a part of the pool, rather, that you and I swim in okay? There is a lot of angst in the evangelical church today. There is not very peaceful stuff going on there. There is just a lot of angst. So let's, let, let's don't worry about the world out there for a second. Let's just talk about our world in here and understand that even in here, we need peace. We need peace. Let me say, how many of you love drama? Don't raise your hands. 
And if you can't answer that question, turn to the person next to you who may be your spouse, and they can answer the question for you. Right? How many of you hate drama? Yeah, not, everybody, everybody hates drama. How many of you who hate drama still find yourself in drama? <laughs> right? It never stops, it seems like. It's just over and over. Today. Today. As we will see from hopefully from the scripture passage here in Romans. I want to share with you some things that I think we can do to give peace. Not just receive peace, but to give peace. And we can do these things right here in our church family starting today. Because I think there's some things here that the Apostle Paul shares that I think are worthy for us to learn from and to understand. And not only that, to put into practice what we can do to not only receive peace, but to actually give it. Now, I want to share with you today, this is not the only things we can do to give peace. This is not the end-all, be-all, the alpha and the omega of peace. There will be a 19th, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, plus sermons on peace after this. Okay? We're going to keep turning that prism. It's okay. But nonetheless, today I want to just give you a few things just from this text, in this text, okay, that we can do to help give peace. And maybe in doing so, share with each other, never mind the world out there, We'll get there. We're going to get there. But more importantly, for right now, the world in here, how we can give this gift of shalom to one another. Amen? Oh, you guys need a nap, right? I mean, it's rainy, cold, all that kind of stuff. And I realize we've referenced this twice now. And if you don't know Arizona, this is really unusual. Okay, two days. One day is one. is enough. Two days. Whew. And the amount of weeds that are going to grow <laughs> as a result of all this rain. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Thank you for the fall. I need peace. Okay, let's take a look at Romans chapter 15. Let me set it up for you real quick. Remember, the whole, really, the, the, the context of the, of the letter to the Romans was this church in Rome that was both Gentiles and Jews made up this church. And Paul didn't plant this church, but he was very much endeared with this church because he knew the people who did plant it. And so he is writing to this church because during this time, if you remember, that, that all of a sudden now here are these Jews and Gentiles, they were worshiping together, and then all of a sudden the emperor of Rome said to the Jews, you are no longer welcomed in this city, you are out. He kicks them out for a time. Now in that time, the Gentiles are now worshiping, and they've got no, no, they don't have their Jewish brothers and sisters with them, and so they're worshiping, and they're doing their stuff, and new practices spring up, and all this kind of stuff happens, and it just, it just takes place, right? It, it, for those of you who have ever grown up in a church, have you ever gone back to the church you grew up in after being away for like years and years and years, and it doesn't seem to be like the same church, right? It's different. Yeah. All of a sudden now, the Jews were allowed back into Rome. They go back to their church, and they find that exact situation. Things have changed. And to some of them, it ain't for the better. People are sitting in their seats, right? The music is different. People are no longer dressed as they should be dressed going to church. They've taken the pews out. They've put, church, they've put chairs in. The organ is now gone. They've got a keyboard and a full-on band. Um, you know, they no longer have a pulpit. It is now a music stand. I mean, I don't even know if they're using the right version of the Bible anymore. 
um, all of, and, and talk about the snacks and the coffee, whoever made that stuff, I mean, I mean it's, it's all changed, right? Yeah. Everything has changed. And as a result, there is conflict in this church. So Paul is giving a back-to-basics kind of lesson about Jesus, about doctrine, about what matters, what doesn't matter, all this kind of stuff. And one of the things he addresses before we get to chapter 15 is that one of the big things that was going on was about whether or not one should eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. It was a big thing. It was a big thing. For some of them in the church, eating meat sacrificed to idols was an abomination. It should never happen. And then there are those in the church who think, it's meat. I don't care who it was sacrificed to. It's meat. And I'm eating it. (laughs) Right? I mean, it doesn't matter. And then all of a sudden now, here they are talking about whether or not they should eat meat sacrificed to idols or not. I mean, really important stuff. They were probably holding conferences on it right? The pros and cons of eating meat sacrificed to idols or not. The theological background of why it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. The theological background of why it's not okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. They were probably doing it, they could have done podcasts on it and written books about it. Are you catching my drift here, y'all? Yeah. There might have been money to be made in this conflict. Paul is addressing this if it was in today's culture. We might have all of a sudden begun to section ourselves off. This side would have been side that said, no meat if it's been sacrificed to idols. This side over here would have said, absolutely, bring the meat sacrificed to idols. We couldn't care less. And conflict going on. That was going on. So Paul is addressing, if you think that little arguments only happen in today's church, you haven't read the scriptures very well in Paul's letters. They took place back then as well. And so if you think, if you wonder, gosh, when will the church ever get out of this? When Jesus comes. When Jesus comes. Until then, we have to live with it, and we have to deal with it. And Paul tells this church how to deal with this stuff to have peace, all right? And so as he shares with them in this conflict and among several of the conflicts here, Paul gives some ideas that I think we should glean from today's passage about how we can give the gift of peace. And the first is this. If we want to share the gift of peace, one thing we can do is this. Lift others up. Lift others up. By the way, I'll give you the three answers right now. Then you can go to sleep. Here it is. The three answers are this. You want to, you want to give, the, and it's only, there's probably more, but only three here so far. Lift, let, live. That's it. Lift, let, live. You like that? Good. I worked hard on it. Here's what I mean by this. Romans chapter 15, lift others up. Paul writes the following, starting with verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Period. Paul starts right off and says, guess what? Lift others up. But maybe that's not where we started from when we heard this passage. I don't know about you, but when I heard this passage, my first question was, who's strong and who's weak? Who's the strong one and who's the weak one? Right? Who's the strong one and who's the weak one? Because the strong one has the responsibility and the weak one does not. So depending upon where you land on that, do you want the responsibility or don't you want the responsibility? If you don't want the responsibility and you say, I'm the weak one, therefore it's your job, you be the responsible one, you do it. Guess what, y'all? Guess who's weak and strong? Yes, all of us. 
even here as well. Paul does identify himself as one of the strong ones in this context, in this case. Doesn't mean he's strong in every context or case. Here's the thing. Both Jews and Gentiles in this church are both weak and strong. And you might say, how is that? Let me give you an idea. The Jewish people who knew God, who were the blessed and are, and are still the chosen people of God, who have the law, all of a sudden now if they come to know Christ, they have to give up the law as a means of salvation and cling to Christ. So they are strong in the fact that they know God, they know the law, but they are weak if they keep holding on to that law as a means of salvation. And in case you forget, there were some Jews that were really having a hard time with this and said, guess what? You need to first, to the Gentiles, be circumcised before you can be a Christian. In other words, you need to follow the law before you can follow Jesus. Paul would say that's a weak position. The Gentiles also had a weak position because here they are coming out of their idol practices meat that was sacrificed to idols and other things that were sacrificed to idols and now all of a sudden now they get to come into this place and 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 they're still holding on to this belief that meat sacrificed to idols is bad contaminated and if you ingest that meat you are ingesting that god into your life and that's not a good thing but when you come into jesus christ they have to begin to learn that no that's not the way it works that's just simply not the way it works. Even Jesus himself said this. It's not what you put into your body that matters. It's what is coming out of your heart that matters. That's what was really important. But nonetheless, both of them came from points of strength and weakness. And that is true for us even today. Whether or not we realize it, I think many of us, if not most of us, have theological beliefs that are just quirky. right? How many of us don't raise your hands? You just can't help yourself sometimes. Like some of you are just like, me, me, oh, pick me. Um, we have theological quirks that are just, really? You don't do that? Okay. And we look at others and, really? You do that? Oh, okay. Theological quirks. We, we have things that we believe about Jesus and believe about the church and believe about the Bible and believe about God and the Holy Spirit that are just quirky. Let me just give you an idea. I, just, I, oh, I could go on forever on this, but I will not. But let me just give you one. There are differences about how the works of the Holy Spirit happen. There are some Christians who believe that the miracles of the Holy Spirit no longer take place. They are done, finished, finito. Does not happen. Healings that take place are not really healings at all. Prophecies that take place are not really prophecies at all. All that kind of stuff. And then there are others, man, they're just raising their hands. They're just speaking in tongues. They're just all that kind of stuff. They're just all about the works of the Holy Spirit and the miracles of the Spirit, that the Spirit is still moving today and all that kind of stuff. And in this church, we have some who raise their hands and some who are raising their hands on the inside. <laughs> right? Yeah, we, we, we kind of, but the quirkiness. And we divide over this stuff. We divide over all this stuff. This is not un that unusual as to what Paul is talking about. So Paul says this. For those of you, and this is the problem here, both Jews and Gentiles in this church were experiencing and trying to live into this freedom of Christ. We are now free from the law. And guess what? We are free to eat meat sacrificed to idols too. But both groups had a hard time letting those things go. Both were weak and both were strong. Here's the point. Regardless of the you know, theological quirks we may have and we may believe in. 
if there is a conviction that someone says, you know what, I just, I just don't think we should have, I'll go alcohol at, at church events because I came from an alcoholic family or I came from being an alcoholic and all that kind of stuff. And then there are those who think, I'm free in Christ. I can drink responsibly. I have no problem with that. What's the problem with having uh, you know, uh, alcohol at a church event? All that kind of stuff. Just a, a, a little example. In that case, don't have alcohol. You want to go drink? Drink after the party. You do not have to have it there. At all. If, if there are people who, I'm just surfacey stuff, who are gluten-free, right? Gluten-free. And we've had these discussions because we've needed to. I mean, that's the whole alcohol thing. We have grape juice for our communion. There's a reason why, okay? We want everyone to be able to partake in communion safely. If, if you've struggled with alcohol in your past, that's fine. We have grape juice, okay? We don't even offer wine. When I was at my Lutheran church I first served in, we did have wine. Woo! Man, that was strong stuff. That was a Jewish wine, only meant to be taken in small doses. Thank goodness. I can't, stand, I can't stand the taste of alcohol anyways, let alone just even strong, bitter alcohol. That's disgusting. That's the point, right? You're drinking what is symbolizing Christ's blood. It should not taste good, necessarily, okay? But nonetheless, um, if there are people who are gluten-free or have dietary restrictions, we ought to make allowances for them. To be able to enjoy safely in, you know, meals that we have here at the church or elsewhere. It's okay. In other words, those of us, and by the way, there are things, and it goes back and forth. There are times when we are weak, and there are times we are strong. There are things that we believe that are quirky, and we hold on to those things. That's fine. And there are things that, you know what, we look at them and go, hmm, I think we can do better. We, you know, I, I, that's not a problem for me, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, let us make sure we lift each other up, and we defer to these things as much as we can of people who might have some serious, convicted objections to whatever it is we may be doing. And by the way, almost all of them are usually very, very, very minor. Very minor. They rarely, if ever, rise to the level, rise to the level of some sort of theological doctrine that we have to stand on that hill for. It just doesn't happen very much. So you know what? Lift each other up. Let me give you another example as a parent. This happened all the time growing up. Lori and I would say, oh, let's, let's, go, let's take the kids out to dinner. That's great, right? Because we just didn't want to cook and got to get the kids out because they're driving us nuts, right? And it kills time as well. Well, the problem is, what do you almost always do when you figure out where you want to go for dinner? You don't usually ask yourselves, your, the, 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 the mom and dad, where they want to go because where they want to go is probably like, let's go to Texas Roadhouse, I want a steak. But you know what? The kids aren't going to eat steak because they don't appreciate good food yet. And you want the kids to eat, so guess where you're going to go? You're going to McDonald's. That is the strong deferring to the weak. Sometimes you just got to have McDonald's. It's not going to kill you. You might not appreciate it or enjoy it too much, but it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Sometimes you got to defer to McDonald's. We're having McDonald's tonight. By the way, they have the adult happy meal, I'm told. <laughs> I have not had it. That's right. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah, they have the adult happy meal. You know what, brothers and sisters? Sometimes we just defer. 
and it's going to be okay. Those of us in this, in this particular case who maybe are stronger in this situation, it's okay. Defer. Let's lift each other up. Let's do that. Here's a second thing, and it's this. Let it go. Let it go. And I know immediately you're probably thinking of that song because it is Christmas. Let me take a look here at verse 3 through 6 in Romans 15. It says this. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice, we may all, or you may glorify, or you all may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just say this. Did you catch the beginning of that passage in verse 3? The insults that they have placed on you have fallen on Jesus Christ. In other words, being in community with one another, we are, if we have these quirky theological beliefs, it is no wonder that at times we might get into some really quirky, foolish arguments over them. And it happens all the time. And if we're ever tempted, we should just let it go. Let it go. Stop having foolish arguments. And that may be a really good piece of advice just for us when we're around family for the holidays. Let it go. Don't fall into the trap. Don't let small arguments become big things. 2 Timothy 2.23 says this. Paul writes to his protege. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Just don't. Because you know they produce quarrels. They never solve anything. They never solve anything. Period. My weakness, my Achilles heel, and you know this, is politics. Oh, get me started. I'll talk politics. It's a foolish endgame. It really is. Do you know why that is a foolish end game for me? Is because when I am talking politics with someone, do you know what I am doing? I am not listening to that person. I am all, all I'm doing is formulating my response to them because they're wrong. That's why. Mark Twain said this, never, never argue with stupid people. They will drag you down to their level and then beat you with experience. Another person said, don't argue with a fool or listeners will think there are two of you. You know, let me just, not that I haven't been real, but let me just be more real with you this morning. I I grieve to some degree the amount of conflict even we as a church have suffered, and we have suffered it needlessly over foolish things that became big arguments and divisive arguments at the end and led to people either leaving this church or incredibly fractured relationships and still here over things that we should never have argued over in the first place. Don't worry about the world out there. They've got their own problems. We have enough problems sometimes to deal with in here. Foolish arguments don't have anything to do with them. And by the way, 
let it go. If someone is poking you, so to speak, trying to, you know, goad you into arguing with them, don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. In fact, in those situations, can I just say this? It might be helpful in that situation just to quietly pray to yourself, oh, dear, dear Lord Jesus, give me the strength to resist because if I don't, I'm going to kill this person. <laughs> Metaphorically speaking. Dear Lord Jesus, help me, give me the patience, the endurance. Please help me to just get away or whatever it is to resist the temptation to engage. Sometimes I think we need to pray these prayers even here. Let us resist the urge to let foolish, small conversations become incredibly divisive ones. Who cares ultimately? Who cares ultimately what decorations go up for Christmas? Who cares ultimately what the color of the carpet will be? Who cares ultimately what flavor coffee we'll have on Sunday morning or that the snacks are good enough or not. Who cares? Who cares? In the long scheme of things, it does not matter. Who cares? All right? I, I, let it go. If someone says a passing comment to you, Sometimes it's just best to let it go. Not everything you should let go. I'm not saying that. I mean, there are things that if there's abuse and all that kind of stuff, illegality, immorality, unbiblicalness, unethicalness, yeah, no, no, you got to speak up. Don't let that go. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the, the arguments we most of the time have. Most of the time have. Because we've got to have an argument. You know how the saying goes, right? If that, that usually in a, in a city small enough that there's one synagogue, there's got to be two of them so they can argue amongst themselves. I think it's the same for the church. I think it's the same for the church. Let's just stop. Who cares what version of the, past, of the Bible we read out of? Can we just agree on the fact that we're reading from the Bible? And that's a good thing because we ought to be reading from Scripture and we ought to be delving deep into Scripture and understanding what Jesus is saying. I don't care if it's the NIV, ESV, KGV, or whatever. Um, I don't, I, it just doesn't matter. FBI, I, I don't care. I'm being equal. CIA, I mean, whatever version you want to use, it does not matter. If you're reading the Bible, amen. 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 Does not, if you want to get up here and ring King James, okay, have at it. <laughs> Fine, you're reading scripture. I don't care. Ultimately, it just doesn't matter. Here's the other thing, last thing. Live and let live. Now, here's what I mean by this. Take a look at verse 7 and following. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Did you catch that? Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Oh, and by the way, here's the question. How did Jesus accept me? Was I perfect? Did I have it all figured out? That it was, I, was I just this glowing example of what a disciple of Jesus should be? Probably not. And if you, th if, you, if you think that about yourself, ask your spouse or those who really know you. Maybe they might be able to get some light and some you know, um, truth into that. But nonetheless, here's the thing, is that we were not perfect when Jesus accepted us. Therefore, why would, should we expect anyone else to be perfect when we welcome them into this place? 
We shouldn't. Let us welcome and accept others the way that Jesus welcomed and accepted us. That's huge. By the way, chances are, I hope, that we came into this place broken, sinful, not having it all together, kind of, you know, argumentative even, maybe scared, fearful, whatever it is you want to say, we were not perfect and we were accepted anyways. Can we do the same for others as well? Goes on and says this, for I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. In other words, God says to the Jews, I welcomed you, you welcome the Gentiles, and guess what will happen? They and you will glorify me together. That's what I want, period. That's what I want. Goes on and says this, and, and Paul backs this up by quoting scripture, Old Testament stuff here. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again, it says, rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let us let all the people extol him. In other words, can you see what Paul is doing here in this church of both Jews and Gentiles? You are both have come together out of God's desire and plan all along to worship and praise him. And that's a beautiful thing. That is the church, is when Jews and Gentiles, no matter who you are, have come and have been accepted as the way that Christ has accepted all of us, have come into this place, into the church, and worship him together. That is a beautiful thing. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will rise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, will have hope. We'll have hope. That's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing. You know what? There are Christians out there who don't follow Christ the way you and I follow Christ. And you know what? That's okay. We didn't write the rule book on it. That's okay. Jesus did. We don't get to say whether someone is a follower of Jesus or not. We don't get to say, we can say it, it means nothing. We don't get to say whether someone is in the kingdom of God or not. We don't get to say those things and, and, and expect it to be true. Jesus is the one who gets to say those things. It's his church. It's his bride. It's his body. He gets to say them. And then he says this, and now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit, that hope, that expectant hope that we will one day see Jesus again, that one day he is going to come back and redeem and put into place everything that he has shared and promised that he would do for those who love him, that hope. So there it is, peace, a way to share it, lift others up, let it go, live and let live. Do you think you can do that this week? Do you think I can do that this week? Don't answer. But perhaps maybe if you noticed is that to do so, it's, it doesn't 
not a gigantic, enormous task, right? In other words, it starts rather small and personal with each other. Let us do that with each other before we even attempt to go out there and do it in the world. I love the simplicity of Scripture. I love the simplicity of these steps and just being able to do these small, what we think are maybe even insignificant things. They're not insignificant. They are not insignificant. Jesus met one-on-one with people all the time, changed their lives, changed their lives. He can do the same for us. And we can do that for each other in the name of Jesus, in the name and the power of the Holy Spirit by just simply doing these three things to help bring peace. Not only does the world need that, but we need it here as well. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we have gathered in your place, we've gathered in your name, we have worshipped you, and we will continue to do so, Jesus. I pray this morning you would give us opportunities starting this very day to give peace. To give peace with each other. Maybe it's a hug. Maybe it's a word of encouragement. Maybe it's just letting an, a, 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 something that someone said that was just kind of quirky or off base. Let it go. Or maybe it's just saying, you know what? I may not follow you that way, Jesus, but they are, and God bless them. Father, I pray that we would not only be agents of those who have received your peace, but Father, we would be agents, disciples, and followers who give it as well. Help us to do that starting today. Thank you, Jesus, for your peace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.